に上がら関係ねえ<笑> Shall we begin? Into his coming I can do this all day Tear down this wall <笑> Ikuzon Hello everybody and welcome back to your truly Ikuzon scripted podcast powered by none other than Jägermeister I hope you're having a great day and that you are ready for an extra treat. Today we are joined by a critically acclaimed, Eisner-nominated, award-winning, award-winning author and creator of comics and graphic novels. He has tackled some of most iconic characters in comic book industry, including Swamp Thing, Venom, Batman, and many more, and breathed new life into them. His vision crafted the worlds of these savage shores, graffiti's wall, and the many deaths of Lila Star. Ren V is here and ready to dive deep into genuine and sense of the non-scripted conversation with us, I hope. Ren, thanks for being here, and how are you doing? Yeah, pleasure to be here. Uh, doing all right. Uh, relaxing on a, on a not very busy day, so. Oh, that's good. Great. Well, tell me this. Traveling from Mumbai, where you were born, to London, where you're living right now is a considerable distance. But as a writer, you've shattered such limits and traveled through time, traveled through universes, and decided the fate of those universes in some sense. Did you as a kid see yourself as a comic book, write, uh, comic book writer or just a fan? Um, I, I didn't see myself as a comic book writer, but I did see myself as a writer. Like I had always had that need to tell stories uh, very early on. I used to get into a lot of trouble for for lying to my teachers, and um, it wasn't it wasn't the sort of get out of trouble lying. It was wildly yeah, I met an alien on my way to work and we hung out for a while, kind of lying, you know. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like I realized now that was just me trying to trying to build narrative, trying to tell stories, um, and so there had always been that inclination. Uh, I actually started out writing in prose. I didn't really start out writing comics. Uh, it was only when a friend of mine came to me and said, hey, you know, you have a really visual writing style. Have you ever tried writing comics that, that something seemed to click in place? Um, obviously, I've also been a fan. There were lots of comics available in India, not necessarily the DC Marvel stuff at the time, but I was reading uh phantom lee fox phantom on the sunday times newspaper i was reading uh flash gordon mandrake and all those kind of older comics that were available then and i was also reading some of the european tintin and asterisk stuff uh so i was certainly a fan uh but i hadn't really considered writing for comics until much later yeah i mean it's interesting how you speak about yourself as a writer First and foremost, because we we spoke to Dan Waters uh, recently, comic book writer as well, and he spoke as well like he wanted to tell stories. He just didn't know what medium it would be. He first thought he was going to write books or do something for the film, but he find himself more to channel it more into comics. Yeah, yeah, I think, and I think like that's a hallmark of a lot of really interesting, really good writers that I know. Uh, it's just the need to tell stories and and you're almost thinking of like every medium is a different environment in which you're telling your stories well when you were writing uh, did you have some role models and creators you looked up to before you started writing and stepping into the industry yeah i mean i think um specifically in terms of comics 
Um, I remember rediscovering comics as an adult. Um, I was, I think, around 19 or 20, and a friend of mine gifted me uh, volume one of Sandman. Uh, and that really sort of brought me back into reading comics. Uh, and I don't know why, but at the time I was kind of obsessed with creators. So if I liked one thing that Neil Gaiman had done, then I was going to read everything Neil Gaiman had done. And I've so done a lot of things. Yeah, yeah. And so I pretty much read, uh, I think I've at this point read everything Neil has done. Um, and then I read somewhere that Neil got his first break in comics because a certain writer called Alan Moore had recommended him to Karen Berger uh, in the early Vertigo days. And I was like, I wonder who Alan Moore is. Seems to have <laughs> good taste. Um, and so I read everything Alan Moore had done. And then pretty much, if you keep following that rabbit hole, then you end up reading Grant Morrison, Warren Ellis, Garth Ennis, Brian Azzarello, basically everyone who wrote that sort of late 80s, early 90s era of vertigo, if you will. Uh, and that really became my uh, North Star in terms of the kinds of comics that I wanted to make. Um, so yeah, I think to some extent it continues to be. Um, outside of that, you know, occasionally I'll read some contemporary writers uh, that, that really inspire me, you know, like Dan uh, that you mentioned is someone whose work I really enjoy. Um, Karen Gillan, Dennis Campbell. Uh, so yeah, really, really interesting contemporary writers are equally inspiration. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, it's interesting because uh, you mentioned first that uh, some of those comics books that you read, though those were, except Flash Gordon was obviously kind of a superhero, but not the superhero like Marvel and DC. So was that kind of your reintroduction to the comics? You were slowly going into the modern superheroes so to speak was it like that yeah i mean for for a really long time when i was 13 my my father took away all my comics and he said you have to read proper books now you have to grow up uh and <laughs> so i stopped reading comics for a while and i was reading uh sort of steinbeck and and i'd started reading uh, more literary authors and so i really stopped reading comics for a long time so somewhere between like age of 13 and 19 I don't think I read too many comics and then 19 this kind of reintroduction happened and it, and it really blew my mind I was like whoa I had no idea people were writing comics like this um, and then ever since then it has been a introduction to contemporary superheroes but really narratives that weren't really part of the superhero mainstream if you look at it like Everything I read and enjoyed was in some way playing with the idea of the superhero out of continuity, not kind of hand in hand with the superhero narratives, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned Garth Ennis. He's a perfect example of that, probably. Yeah. Yeah. And even, even like the more contemporary superhero stuff that I read was kind of subversive in some way, like Kingdom Come, Mark Wade was, was one of my favorite things, but. Again, it was doing something different. Um, it wasn't just, look, here I am to save the day, punchy, punchy stuff, you know? Yeah, like the Savage Shores. It explores yeah. themes of imperialism and the clash of cultures, capturing, uh, in my opinion, visually stunning essence of, of the story. Uh, what I like uh, with, this comics, uh, with this comic is that it 
actually challenge this traditional concept of heroes and villains like you are speaking right uh, speaking right now so and, and how it uh, presented consequences of violence so when you wrote it what were the messages or ideas that you wanted to explore with it well i was really thinking about i mean when you when you talk about the perception of the hero versus the villain i was really thinking about the framing of one kind of monster as civilized and and desirable versus the other kind of monster as savage and undesirable which is what imperialism and colonialism does um you know it's people with guns and weapons coming into lands and then terming oh look at those guys they're so uncivilized look at us we only came here with weapons to civilize them but in the end they're both monsters and in the end, they're both men. They're both humans. Um, and so I, I thought there was a narrative to be to be told there. Uh, I was also playing with the idea of this kind of contemporary colonial era Western adventure tale where some sort of either European or American hero goes to some sort of exotic land and uh, discovers some deep, dark secrets and it only makes him more wonderful, makes him more powerful. But you never see that narrative told from the perspective of the people of the land where he goes and the presumptions that he makes about them. Uh, and so I kind of wanted to tell the story from that perspective. And then a little bit more complex as the story goes on is is the question of vampirism and, and you know, blood-drinking monsters. Like, if you think about a society, what colonialism does is, is to my mind, really very similar to what vampires do in that they drain uh, a society of its lifeblood, of its life, of its identity. You leave behind like this zombified ghoul that um, is forever in the after image of what you did to them. Um, and so I, I find that to be a very potent metaphor for colonialism as well. So... These were the these were the themes I was playing with. Oh, that's gonna leave me thinking. <laughs> but uh, also with the uh, let's call him uh, the main monster, uh, the uh, the one yeah uh, bishop. Section, uh, bishop. I, I always for, uh, forget his name. No. Excuse me for that. <laughs> <laughs> Is it like uh, uh, it's like. Um, in my opinion, like you wanted to make a character that is not lovable and force reader to love them, to cheer for him, because in the end, even if you cheer for him against the vampire. Yeah, I mean, I think I don't know if the character is not lovable, but I I think he thinks of himself as an unlovable thing. Right? Um, he knows he's a monster. He knows he is a rakshas. And, and this to me is the, again, a very interesting fundamental difference between the two mythologies. The Indian Rakshas is aware of his monstrous nature and is someone who, who voluntarily bequeaths his time on this world to human beings. Whereas the European vampire is someone who thinks he is a higher evolved creature um, and does not see himself as monstrous. So I kind of wanted to play those two ideologies against each other, even though fundamentally they're the same kind of creature, if you see what I mean. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's it's interesting how you compare the mythology because it's even in if you look at the if you look at something like dragon as a mythical creature, you yeah in the in the Western uh, like stories, usually the dragon is the villain because like it's the uh, mutated snake from the Bible, but sure. uh, in the Eastern stories, there are in a lot more cases they are like the wise and the good creatures. Yeah. And you could see it even in Raya and the Last Dragon, Pixar movie, something like that. So it's interesting how they coll- collide there. So I mean, I love that you picked up this topic because you can even go further. You can even go deeper into understanding why sort of European mythology fears the dragon, whereas why largely sort of Asian and East Asian mythology reveres the dragon. It's... In Asian mythology, dragon is a force of nature. Uh, it it is wise, it is old, it is ancient, but it's not necessarily kind. It can still destroy you, and yet people live with it. They they revere it. They pray to it. They they coexist. Whereas in in European mythology, the dragon is to be hunted. It is to be conquered. It is to be destroyed by the hero. And this you know, further defines the society's approach to nature. Like nature needs to be conquered. Nature needs to be exploited and it needs to be uh, turned into into product for profit. Whereas largely, if you look at East Asian societies, at least before the advent of capitalism, they were much more in tune with nature. They, they, they were, there was less deforestation, there was less capitalism, there was less exploitation of resources. So, I think stories and the way cultures deal with their environment are are um, things that that go hand in hand. They are they drive each other. Yeah, in in, in George Martin's uh, uh, Game of Thrones, the character Viserys Targaryen says, uh, mm. uh, "The brave men didn't kill the dragon. The brave men wrote them." Yeah, yeah, exactly. And arguably, one of the series with biggest legacy in comics is Detective Comics and name itself bears gigantic weight. And you tackled it, you took the pen and started writing uh, Cape Crusader's Odyssey. How did you feel taking this mantle of its writer? Uh, especially because stories like this were with great tradition, with great fandom and with great responsibility and angry. <laughs> um, to be honest, uh, I don't really get intimidated by writing like i don't know to me when i start writing everything else just gets shut down and goes away i'm just a child having fun um with my creative process and so i don't really worry about fandoms and the the magnitude of a character i put in the same energy into batman that i put into justice league dark that i put into my creator own work and so at least in the creative process, like it has next to no difference. Um, I might stop occasionally and go like, wait, I'm writing the comic that the company's named after. That's pretty cool. Um, <laughs> but outside of that, yeah, I don't really get intimidated uh, by by fandoms or by the, by the popularity of the character. Um, actually, I joke quite a bit that the first character I wrote at DC was Batman. In, in Batman Secret Files, that was the first story I ever did at DC. And then the first character I wrote at Marvel was Wolverine. Um, and so I was like, 
you know, I already started with the two most popular characters at these companies. So, uh, yeah, what's now that I've done that, I don't need to be intimidated by anything else. Um, I love that people are so passionate about the way they think of these characters. And I always enjoy how much effort people put into picking up pieces of the story that, that I put down. Like when I write, I like the idea of leaving secrets inside stories. Um, and so there's often Easter eggs and little references that I only make for myself and maybe one or two other people will get it. And then I'm always surprised when like some person goes like, I read this in issue three, you did this panel. Was it a reference to this? I was like, yes, it was. Thank you. So yeah, I enjoyed that about the fandom aspect of it, but yeah, I, I don't, I'm not wired to be intimidated by characters. I love how you presented Batman's uh, battle with inner demons in your run in uh, Detective Comics. Uh, I read it very recently. I still have two or three chapters to catch up with it. But the, the city of Gotham is always, city itself is a living character, uh, as yes. it's often perceived to be. And now, how challenging was it and still is to cope with developing this complex in interpersonal dynamics while maintaining the overall detective narrative in this course. I mean, yeah, it's pretty complex. Um, essentially I'm telling one story over, over 30 issues. Um, and it's not something a lot of people have done recently. Uh, and so it also kind of rubs against people's expectations where they're like, cool, I want a three issue arc and then you're done and we move on to the next villain. Yeah, I expected that, that after six chapters, but no. Yeah, yeah. So I've done that before with, with other series. You know, I've done that with Catwoman. I've done that with Justice League Dark. And with this one, I just felt like, now nah, I want to write a novel. I don't want to write a short story. Um, and, so, <clears throat> and so in that sense, uh, it's quite complex writing this sort of grand sprawling narrative. But also, I think it's... it's um, it follows a certain kind of character logic because all of these are, everything that happens is, if you look at it in a way, a consequence of a choice that Batman makes. Uh, and so when you write a story as a consequence of character choices that presents new questions, therefore new answers, therefore new choices, um, it's possible to, to keep writing a story however long you want to write it. Um, I don't know if that answers your question, but but that's kind of how I think about plot and story. Um, and then, of course, it's useful to have the themes that you mentioned in mind, so you know what kind of a story you're writing. Like, I mean, uh, if you people... think about the relationship of the of the major players, you have the city of Gotham, and you could think of Gotham's inner demon as Batman. And then you have Batman, and Batman's inner demon is Barbatos. And so this kind of tiered layer of, of inner demons, uh, if you will, and, and each each battle with an inner demon will change the fate of what is going to happen to, to that character, to the city, if you will. Can you share with me if there's uh, maybe your most memorable moment or moment from your run on Detective Comics that you are particularly proud of uh, proud of, and why does it hold such significance for you or is that maybe a moment that is still in your head and we are yet to see 
I mean, um, there are a few moments that I really like, um, but because it's like childish joy of like when you're doing a magic trick and you put a coin on your hand and everyone's looking at that coin, there's that moment of like, oh, you have no idea what I'm about to do with this coin, right? Uh, and so in that way, like the moment where Two-Face saves Batman, uh, and essentially Harvey gives up control to to the Two-Face side of him. That was a really good, powerful moment for me to write uh, because I know it becomes important later. Um, again, uh, there's a moment where uh, Talia tells Batman a story about uh, a soldier lost in the desert. It's like oh, a I mystical it. story. Um, and people were like, yeah, that was a cool story. I was like, you have no idea why that story is important. Um, and so again, like we will see that story become important, you know, four issues later or six issues from now. Um, and then there was a moment where Gordon and Batman have a conversation and Gordon is like, you know, you have to stop, not, 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 I'm not afraid that Batman cannot stop. I'm afraid that Bruce Wayne cannot stop. Um, and so that conversation was really meaningful and important to write because there is another Batman and Gordon conversation coming, you know, eight issues down the line that reflects upon this one. So um, I was talking to another writer recently and we talk, we, talk, we compared writing to juggling. Um, and, and you're excited because so far all I've been doing is throwing balls up and then four or five issues from now, I'm going to start catching them. And it's always impress impressive when you see a juggler throw a ball up and you're like, he's never going to catch that. And then it lands in his hand and you're like, whoa, well done. So there's that joy of writing sort of plotting that comes back full circle, if you will. Yeah. And hearing you speak now about uh, eight, 10 chapters into future, do you have everything uh, planned uh, on such long term? And how often does things that you are uh, like 100% sure you will write change in the meantime. So I don't have everything planned, but I have a lot of things planned. Uh, and I tend to plan more in the beginning of the run. Because if you plan more in the beginning of the run and you have good storytelling instincts, the second half of the run almost kind of writes itself. It's like um, uh, I don't know the I don't know the term for it, but you know you can fractal patterns, right? You create a design. It at first it just looks like an oval, then another oval, then another oval. At some point, when you've drawn thirty ovals, you start seeing that oh, it looks like a flower. There's a pattern being formed here. Writing is a little bit like that. So if you are careful about what you draw at the beginning, eventually, by the time you get to the middle, you'll start seeing the pattern. And then, therefore, writing the second half of it becomes much easier and you don't really have to plan ahead for the second arc. So I'm at that point where I'm kind of in the middle of the run and I know what the pattern is and I can see what it looks like. I can see all the moments where what I did in the beginning of the run will become meaningful and important in the second half of the run. Um, yeah, yeah. So I don't really, so the answer is both. I plan ahead and I don't plan ahead. Yeah. 
And I must take this chance while we are all spoke, speaking about Detective Comics to highlight even Kegel's covers for Detective Comics, which are breathtaking, unique, captivating, and beautiful pieces of art. Right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I was I was in France last week, and and Evan lives in somewhere in France, and uh, we met, and he gifted me one of the originals for his covers. And I don't know that a lot of people realize this. They're not done on paper. They're yeah. they're created on scratch boards. So literally he is taking a knife and scratching a black board wow. uh, to create those covers. Uh, and it's insane to see the amount of work that goes into each one. Um, and also, I think Evan and I, I mean, we're working on a, on a creator-owned book together as well. And, and we're good friends outside of the comics relationship um but Evan i understand the aesthetic of the run so it's kind of nice to be working with someone who doesn't again doesn't have the history with superhero comics so when i say hey we want to do operatic batman you get operatic batman and and yeah it's a it's a joy to it's a joy to see yeah it's like even the covers tell the story that you're yeah covering. exactly exactly there are no rules but one. Drink Jägermeister at minus 18 degrees Celsius. I wanted to ask you, since we are talking about the art, uh, one of your comics that I read, uh, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, Paradiso. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's a kind of apocalyptic, post-apocalyptic uh, comic book. Sure. And I'm a huge fan. I'm a huge fan of that. And the art. The art is fantastic. Uh, I forgot the, the artist's name. Shame on me. Dave, Dave, Dave Malia Pramani. Yeah. And uh, th that story, it's a little bit, I have to say, story is a little bit, I didn't pay attention to it maybe at the beginning because like you mentioned before, you were kind of a slow burn with it even though it's eight issues. Uh, but the art is phenomenal. And uh, did you, because it's uh, like... Uh, post-apocalyptic world and it has elements of sci-fi and it has uh, like almost Mad Max sometimes feel to it. Uh, how much of the input did you have into creating that visual world or, or was it just him like from his head or was it like your input there and how much of it? I mean with that one in particular I think um, there was a lot of input from, from my end. Uh, I actually conceptualized that series with uh, an architect friend of mine uh, so if you if you realize the story is actually about a sentient living city um, yep. and so we came from an architect's preoccupation with the idea that you could have an actual living city because everyone you know people always talk about like Gotham is a city that's a an actual character but what would it be like if Gotham could like wake up and stretch her arms, if you will, and, and move things around in the city? So that's kind of how we conceptualize this. So there was quite a lot of world building input, uh, even visually from from us. Uh, but obviously, it, executing that and interpreting that sort of visual textual data and then translating that onto paper in itself is quite an amazing and creative task. And I think. Uh, Dave was very much involved with the aesthetic of the book as well. Like, I don't think it would look the same if Dave wasn't involved. So, um, so yeah. So I, I don't know if that answers your question, but it's very difficult 
especially in the kind of collaboration when, like I do, I don't think of comic books. A lot of people think of comic books as a, as a conveyor belt. You know, a writer has an idea and they write a script. Then they put it down in the conveyor belt and it moves over to the artist and they draw what's on the script and it moves over to... I don't think of comics that way. I think of comics like uh, a band making a song. Everyone's present at the same time and everyone's adding little bits and pieces uh, to a final product, which eventually when it goes out, no one hears four musicians playing. People just hear the song uh, if if you've done your job well. So, um, so yeah, so it's very difficult to draw a line between where my input ends and Dave's input begins, if you will. Yeah, I mean, uh, but it's so it's so interesting that you mentioned that you talk with the architect because uh, I don't know if you are familiar with uh, Tsutomu Nihei, who Japanese manga creator. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, like he was also architect, I think, or he was studying architecture. And when I was reading Paradiso, it kind of reminded me of some of his work at some panels. Like when I saw the the, the landscapes of the city, I was like. That, that that is like blame almost in some sense not for right. but there was a resemblance there right yeah i know dave's very heavily influenced by japanese manga and, and artists as well so uh the that influence is undeniable and you know great minds things think alike so uh happy happy to be in the same on the same page if you will what are the key elements that you consider when uh, collaborating with artists to bring your vision to life and as you said it's uh, like joint process between you artists pencilers and everybody but it, is it always the same process for every company you work like for marvel and uh, dc or for other indie stuff i mean i try to make it the same process uh, sometimes you get told who you're working with certainly earlier on um and and you hope that the collaboration will be good most of the times Creators are, are regular, normal, everyday people, uh, and they all want to do a good job. So the collaborations are great. Like Mike Perkins, for example, I had never worked with before Swamp Thing, and I didn't know him before Swamp Thing, but Mike's like one of my greatest friends now, and his work is amazing. So, um, and, and that collaboration was one of the best collaborative experiences I've ever had. So, yeah, it varies how you come together, but over time, the thing I've learned, and it's not really a process, is you want to work with people who are as obsessive about their work as you are about yours. Um, so again, going back to the band analogy, um, so I play a lot of guitar. And if I want to work with a vocalist, I want to feel like the vocalist is spending the same amount of time thinking about what they want to do with the song uh, thinking about their parts of the song as I am spending thinking about mine. Uh, so I think that's very important. And then you want to work with people that kind of inspire you, that kind of excite you. Like you look at their art and you're like, holy shit, I have no idea how you did that. Or but- like, that is amazing to look at. You, you have to feel amazed by your collaborator's work. I think that's very important. Again, going back to the band analogy, it's the same, right? Like when you're jamming with someone and, and your bass player just lands this thick, fat, amazing riff. And you're like, that is an amazing riff. And I want to play a song to that riff now. Uh, so I think that's very important in, in all your collaborators, not only the artists. Like I think 
when I get colors back from Dave Stewart or I get colors back from Matt Wilson, I've always looked at those and going like, oh my God, that looks beautiful. Uh, when I get letters back from Aditya, it's always, it's always weird. When you're working on a comic, it doesn't really feel like a comic until you get lettered pages back. And huh. if the lettered pages are good and the letterer knows how to do placements, it just feels like, yes, that is a comic book now. It's not script and art and colors. It's a comic book. Um, so yeah, you have to work with people that inspire you to want to be better in a lot of ways. Yeah, so you're basically like uh, bettering each other. Like uh, It's almost like uh, you're becoming better in the process of making comedy. Yeah, you know, there has to be... There has to be some measure of competitiveness there as well. Like, mm, yeah. um, you know, I've I've heard some of my collaborators be like, you know, Rob knows how to challenge an artist. And, and there's some measure of competitiveness there when I'm like, no, 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 I don't want to do a standard comics page. I want you to do this like Sergio Topi. And then all of a sudden the artist is also excited because no writer has ever asked them to do that. Um, so, yeah, I feel like, I feel like, the creative process is best when you're constantly challenged and excited and almost creatively pressured into doing something you haven't done before. But do you like, uh, as a writer, do you almost feel like you're in a director's chair for a movie uh, when, when you are, or, or is it more like peer-to-peer? No, I think, um, again, it's very much like being in a band. Um People, people love the director analogy, but I think it's a false analogy. The correct analogy is band. So when you're working as a band on an album, you know, maybe four songs came from John Lennon, but then maybe four songs came from Paul McCartney. Now, who's the director? You can't, you can't really tell because sometimes a song starts from uh, John Lennon's lyrics. Sometimes it starts from Paul McCartney's guitar riff. Sometimes it starts with a beat from Ringo. Uh, and so it's it's much more like that than it is a question of a, a director and a, and a cameraman or, or post-production, you know. Oh, yeah. Uh, problem with bands is usually people do not remember drummer's name. <laughs> yeah, you know. Uh, hey, man, like, you have to, if you want to be remembered, you have to be Buddy Rich. You have to be Danny Carey, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, but you mentioned uh, Swamp Thing earlier, and I... Never uh, read Swamp Thing storyline, and I always wanted to start one. So how would you hook me up to open the first page of your Swamp Thing? First page of my Swamp Thing? Yeah. Um, God, it was so long ago, I don't even remember the pitch. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a weird body horror story about an immigrant coming to America and having to reconcile his past and present, demonstrated by a metaphor of a man turning into a giant swamp monster, uh, affected by trauma and trying to make something better from it. Oh, yeah, you uh, you know, I actually read uh, these uh, seven shorts. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, uh, honestly, like, uh, Swamp Thing, I feel as a comic book reader, uh, so like a- empty and uh, false for not reading any any swamp thing storyline just kind of you know walked b- by me and I didn't catch 
Oh, I think it's okay. I think I think these things are generational and and like I hadn't read Swamp Thing. Like obviously Swamp Thing happened way before Sandman, but I read Sandman. I read all of Sandman, then I read all of Hellblazer. And I think in one of the Hellblazer issues, Swamp Thing shows up and I was like, oh, okay, cool. That's Swamp Thing, huh? And then I realized Alan Moore had this long, huge, sprawling Swamp Thing run. And I was like, oh, cool. Maybe I should read that. So I read like a couple of volumes of it. I hadn't even finished the whole thing until, um, you know, I was already writing stuff for DC. And I was like, okay, cool. I need to go back and read some of this uh, issues to pick up specific things from them. And, and so, yeah, I don't think... I don't think you should feel bad at all about not having read stuff. The The cool part about not having read stuff is now you have stuff to read. You know? Yeah. Uh, tell me this. Writers, artists, and actors are a special part of every fandom, especially in comics uh, and comic book movies. And many fans look up to them, yourself included. You yourself have frequently been to conventions. So maybe... Can it maybe happen uh, that you had an experience uh, uh, to experience something opposite, uh, that you shared a memorable encounter with a fan of your work that left a lasting impression on you? Have it maybe happened on some panel or something? Yeah, yeah, many times. To be honest, Paradiso, very early on, I met a gentleman who had traveled all the way from France to come to one of the British conventions to meet me specifically because uh, he had done his PhD thesis on uh, fictional cities as living characters based wow. off of Paradiso, which was like wow. a really scientific sort of delving between archaeology and architecture and literary fiction kind of thesis. And he presented me with the whole thesis, and it was it was almost as thick as the book itself. So I was like... That is amazing that someone's taken my work and made it their work in a, in a completely different context, you know? Um, so I always remember that. I always take a lot of joy in that. Um, and then when I did Graffiti's Wall, uh, a fan, but also a friend, someone I knew in comics, reached out to me with a private message saying, and, and this is a person who is 50 plus years old, um, and reached out to me and said, I haven't ever cried ever when I read a comic. And then this is the first comic that has made me cry. And it reminded me of moving to Glasgow as a teenager uh, and what that felt like. Uh, and I cannot put into words the, the appreciation I have for your work. And again, you know, that's something that I always remember. Um, and then... I have a very funny experience with, with San Diego uh, in that the first time I went to San Diego was pre-COVID uh, and no one knew me because I was a relatively new creator. And then the second time I went to San Diego was last year, which is post-COVID. And in that time I had written Swamp Thing, Blue and Green, Layla Star, and I was just announced as right starting on Detective. So all of a sudden, you know, I was going back, just walking down the road. Um, actually, no, just walking into American immigration and someone in the immigration line, two lines over, yells out, Ron V, I love your detective. So like, what? 
And people are yelling at me while I'm standing in immigration trying to get my passport clearance. Um, and then I was walking down the road at San Diego and a bunch of uh, very obviously Indian origin uh, students uh, or, or people in San Diego just stopped me in the middle of the road and went like, are you around me? Can we take a picture with you? Um, and so that kind of stuff is always, always weird for me because... 90% of the year, I've just sat in this room at my computer working on things. And then the other 10%, it's like, whoa, that's Ron V. I'm like, no, no, no. You must be talking about someone else. <laughs> Imagine how the NATO feels in public. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you, uh, I forgot to mention, but you, you mentioned uh, there when you were speaking about your works, uh, Many Deaths of Leila Star. Yeah. And, uh, I read it and it's a very, it's a very interesting concept of a story. Uh, and I wanted to ask you about, there about writing because uh, it is written almost uh, like I saw before I read it, some people suggested that it's almost like a fable, like a fairy tale. And uh, mm-hmm. it kind of, when you read it, it's pretty open and straightforward with its themes, sort of. Uh, was it in, in that matter, was it easier maybe for that story to explore its themes because it was so like say it in your face with like this is death uh, and we're gonna analyze death and its themes and things like that i mean it, it, i I wouldn't say it was a fable i think yeah sure people people talk about it but i think it's more like south american magic realism right so if you um it's not particularly south america but it originates from there but uh, I think the closest comparison I have in my head to something like it is uh, Jose Saramago. Um, it was a, it was a Portuguese novelist, Nobel Prize winner, and and all of that. But if you read his work, I think it's kind of the point of magic realism is to take the metaphor and make it real, and then all of a sudden examine the effect on the world when you don't have to pretend like it's a metaphor anymore, like it's actually happening, like she is actually dead, she is actually here, and she is actually dying in every issue. Now that we got that out of the way, let's look at what that means for human beings and what that means for everyday people. I think uh, I always think of every story as having two volume knobs, right? So if you have the the high concept, the the sci-fi, the fantasy stuff, and you turn up the volume on that, then it becomes harder to do the the human, these little details, the mundane, but the beautiful stuff uh, at the same time. Um, so it's a balance. And then what you what I'm doing by saying like, okay, here's the big high concept sci-fi stuff, issue one, first ten pages, I've explained it all to you. Basically, what I've done, and I've said, okay, I'm going to set this volume at five, and it's always going to stay at five. So you can pretty much accept that that music is going to be playing in the background. Now, let's come and look at the the everyday people, the the boy learning about death for the first time, the, the, the man who lo- loses his wife, the man who ignores his son. Let's talk about those stories but they will always be in the con- context of this music that is playing in the background. So I think that's kind of what magic realism does. It says, here's the magic, except that it's real. 
now let's move on and, and look at the rest of the story. So I think Layla Star is much more akin to magic realism than it is to fairy tales or fables, if you will. Before we wrap up, let me ask you a quick question. If this is of, is of any importance to you, which of your stories would you want to see on a big screen first? All of them because I get paid very well when they're turning <laughs> to... <laughs> it's finally a real answer. <laughs> finally a real answer. I may mean, add that question. I've been I've been very lucky uh, in that pretty much all of the creator-owned stuff I've done is somewhere in the pipeline of being adapted into, into either TV or animation or film. Uh, and so my answer is a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but it's always exciting. And uh, I'm not one of those people who is like a purist. You know, I know there are people out there who are like, Oh, if you're here to make films, you shouldn't be in comics. Like comics is supposed to be for the real comics people. Uh, and I'm like, nah, that's just bullshit, man. Like you wanna you wanna be a cool writer. You wanna write in every medium. I wanna write. I wanna make comics. I wanna write novels. I wanna write film and TV. I wanna write for radio. Can you imagine if because I'd done five or ten comics, people in film and TV were like, oh no no no, you're a comic book writer. You you're not allowed to come here. Um, so. Yeah, I'm always excited by by my stories getting translated to another medium. Um, even more excited when I'm the one doing the translating as well. So, yeah. Does that maybe mean that something is on the way and we can expect some announcement relatively soon? <laughs> <laughs> no, it means that a lot of things can be on the way. But knowing how Hollywood functions, like it may not happen for the next hundred years or it may happen tomorrow. <laughs> oh, yeah. Who knows? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And before we wrap up, we have a little tradition where we say a quote on Montenegrin language and translate it to English. So I choose a quote from a Montenegrin-born actor, Žarko Laušević, and he said on our language, Mrtvi živimo, živi mrtvojemo, pa posle nekoliko umiranja, kad malo živnemo, stigne na smrt. And something closest on the English would be, we live dead, we die alive, and after several deaths, when we live up a little, that catches up with us. Many deaths of Layla Star. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, if he had turned that into a book, maybe I wouldn't have made mine, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, he did turn it into a book. Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah. And thank you. I I think we really went deep. If we had more time, we could go balls deep. But yeah. So. <laughs> my, my, my pleasure. My pleasure. Yeah. I'm glad I hope we you enjoyed it as well. Talk. Yeah, I did. I did. It was great. Thank you. Thank you, Ra. We stay genuine, uncensored, and unscripted, and we always will, as we have to order our usual. Share us, subscribe us, and stay tuned until the next Wednesday. Iguzo!